Hello, and welcome to the Business of Authority. I'm Jonathan Stark. And I'm Rochelle Moulton. And today we're going to talk about the experience economy, the aftermath. I am so excited for this episode. I've been waiting for this since we talked to Joe. Right. So folks, uh, if you haven't listened to the episode before this one, last week's episode, uh, you might want to listen to that first. It's an interview with Joe Pine, the co-author of The Experience Economy, which is right up there in my top five business books ever that I've read. Uh, which is saying something because that's a high bar. But it was a great interview, and the core premise is that the core economic engine of our time has sort of migrated from commodities, where you pull stuff out of the ground, to goods, where you make stuff in a factory, to services, which I think is probably what most people think they're doing that are listening to this podcast, where you do some service for someone, whether it's dry cleaning or massage or uh, psychotherapy or whatever, you know, services or landscaping or developing software. And then the level up from that, which he believes is as distinct from the previous levels as each is from the one below it, is the experience economy where uh, you're creating actual experiences where the, the, the product is inside, the feelings that are generated by the experience and inside of the person who's experiencing it, uh, and how that is theater. Basically, the business has theater, and then the highest level and the last level uh, being transformation, the transformation economy, which he feels is the thing that will come after, and that will be the last thing because there's nothing higher than that. So we both read the book. Obviously, we we're both on the interview, and we couldn't help going through it. Like, it's amazing. It all makes sense. I we can recognize examples of it in our daily lives. We can see where someone is operating in the service economy. We can see where someone's operating in the experience economy. We can see, where, you know, you can see it when once you start looking for it, you can see it everywhere. And it's like, oh yeah, the experience stuff is better. The transformation stuff is better. If you're like me and you want to charge for outcomes and not hours, then it's it's incumbent on someone like me to try to be climbing up that progression. And yeah, so it's like, all right, but how does someone like a soloist take these concepts, which are really aimed at, uh, the book is really aimed at kind of like fortune 500 big companies. How do you take that? And as someone who doesn't have a massive team of employees or, or retail locations, for example, create an experience in a primarily online business that, doesn't happen in meat space as they call it so we just wanted to today share with you our the sort of pinpoints that we pulled out that we that we feel like we could apply the 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 sort of thinking and and kind of wrestle with it live in real time (laughs) well i think the other thing is in the book roughly three quarters of it gets you from the idea of commodity to really focusing on experiences and I was as I was reading it I was getting all of these ideas but I was still thinking how do we do this in our kinds of businesses where we're soloists and we don't have these huge budgets to do things online? How do we do that? And then about the last 25% introduced this idea of the transformation economy. And then, and Jonathan and I were texting back and forth going, whoa, this is what, this is what we're talking about. And so I think it, part of this is the journey. It's like, how do we get from just being a service provider to offering experiences and ultimately transformations. That's what I think is so fascinating about this. For me specifically, there's a real challenge with the experience part because the the experience step, which is that it's heavily based on 
the guest, as he calls the customer at that level, the guest spending time with you. And that's kind of antithetical to, it's not totally antithetical to my, my worldview. Like I get it. Like if you are at Disney world and you're with your family on space mountain, like you're, you're not paying to spend the time there, but the more time you're spending there, the more experience you're getting and it's happening inside. You're not paying for the time that you're, I mean, you, you are, but I think technically what you're paying for is the feelings. So not to get too woo woo about it. I was like, Oh man, like how, how does this work for somebody who wants to charge for outcomes? Not, not inputs. If I have to spend all this time with someone that doesn't, that doesn't track. And we asked him about it on the show. It's like, well, if you, if you don't have a retail location, you're not meeting people in real life. Like, how do you even do this? And he gave us some ideas and I, and I think they track with me and I, it doesn't, the time thing, I'm sort of over it. It's not, I think it's a terminology that he uses in the book that I think is, um, I think can be taken the wrong way. I fear that people are going to be like, oh, I have to spend more time with my clients. It's like, no, it's the other way around. They want to spend more time with your experience. That's, that's it. With Disney, think about that as a, as an admittance fee, right? You pay a fee in front to get the experience. And, and maybe an example of that in our world, it might be a membership site. Yes, exactly. Right, Where you come in and, and you're behind the curtain mm-hmm. and you have whatever experience it is you design for your members. Yes. Yes, exactly. And so big picture, the mechanism that will get you up this ladder from commodities all the way to transformations is increased customization. And what takes you down the ladder is increased commodification. Is that the right word? Commodity? commoditization i'm not sure Commoditization. well you're fine yeah. <laughs> so you can you can either go up and get more valuable bigger impact higher fees all of those things more revenue or you cannot innovate and you can just fall down the ladder and be commoditized into something that's um, easily replicable by competitors or alternatives that are that are better so customization, customization, customization. So that's that doesn't scare me at all because operating in a, a digital space, it's not that hard. It's or certainly a lot easier than it is when you're dealing with atoms and moving things around and having a whole bunch of employees and how do we get all these employees to not adhere to the script, but get it. How do you get them into the culture so that they understand it, you know, like a cast member at Disney? How do you kind of onboarding these employees and we don't have to worry about that for the by and large we don't have to worry about that it is fun to focus on outcomes and and a high level of customization at least i think it is mm-hmm. you really get into the heads of the people that you're working with and and you can help them better right right i asked him this in the in the interview like can you skip a step and he's like not really everything's built on the one below it and you and i both operate mostly in the transformation zone already. He's like, all coaches are in the transformation business. So if you're, if you're, you know, one-on-one consulting, that's heavily customized. That said, I think looking at the experience level for certainly for, for some products that I offer, I could do a much better job of creating a better experience for people just to pick an example. In the pricing seminar, the pricing seminar is mostly videos. And then there's like uh, a bunch of of chat interaction. So every other day you get videos for, for a hundred days and then there's discussion around each video and there's a cohort of people who all started at the same time and it's like a community and they help each other. And I'm there too, to kind of guide the experience a little bit. 
it's the closest thing I have to a place where people sort of pay admission. It feels like that. You could almost call them guests. I call them participants, but you could all, I, I probably should call them guests or students. They don't, it all tracks. They pay an admission fee and then they spend the time. And again, I, I pop in and out uh, every day or two, but it's mostly them working on their own stuff and uh, working through the material. And I've gotten feedback over time about little things that, well, I say little, but to me, it's kind of like, I'm all about the 80-20 rule and I'm going to do this stuff that, I don't want to say scales, but I don't want to add too much friction for me because that will result in, potentially result in like it not being finished. The first time I did the pricing seminar, it was a huge amount of work compared to running like my third one, which is going now because I, there's a lot of unknowns. I wasn't sure about a million things. So I did that and I made a lot of decisions back then because of that massive amount of work. I, you know, some things just didn't make it, didn't make the cut. And now that the lion's share of the work is kind of like known, I'm like, Oh, okay. I, I know how this works. I know how the videos work. I know how many are, you know, so on and so forth. I can go back and take feedback from people that have gone through it. And for example, do things like, um, like a lot of people much prefer just audio instead of video. The group breaks down roughly into thirds, people who love video, people who uh, love audio only and would rather have that and people who love text. So they learn better in it's, and it's roughly equal thirds where you've got interesting um, and, and right. Yeah. It's. I'm like, well, what's the difference between video and audio? But I like video. You, like, I'm in that third. You can listen in your car. Right. Or wherever yeah, you yeah, are. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So people, depending on their lifestyle, that's one thing. Another thing is some people just, they feel like video is way too slow and they would much rather have have a transcript. And at the time, I was like, yeah, but that means you're just going to scan it and probably miss half of it. But Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe they're great speed readers. I don't know. I'm a transcript person, Jonathan. <laughs> yeah. I, no, I know. I, I believe it. so much faster. I believe it. I had a whole bunch of people being like, uh, the video player I picked doesn't have a, you know, a speed control. And people were like, I need, I need to watch these at 2x. And I'm like, how can you... I already talk too fast. Like, how can you listen to it at double speed? But anyway, the point is... In there, here's this place that's like a virtual space. It's like a virtual room. And there are all these people kind of milling around. I mean, I called it a seminar for a reason. It's like a college seminar where there's a big group of people and there's someone who presents a lesson and then people break into groups and they sort of discuss. And one of the things I could do to make the experience better for literally two thirds of the people would be to provide the videos as just audio, like maybe as a podcast or something that was released along with the videos. That's actually a really good idea. And, uh, and then get transcripts done for people who just want to read it. And right off the bat, that would, it would make it more engaging for two thirds of the people who aren't kind of fighting in this video medium that they don't prefer. And it's a little bit of a time investment, but it's not that big a deal. No, because we, we all learn differently. And if your goal or our goal, right, anybody's goal at the end of the day is to teach people, then you've got to find a way to to reach them. Otherwise, your market will only be people who like video or people who like audio. Mm -hmm. So you got to hit all the media. Yep. Before the show, you were talking about something so similar that it reminded me of what I just said, 
the uh, PDF thing with the red circle or whatever. Oh, yeah. One of the things that listening to Joe and and reading uh, their book that really hit me is that I felt like I needed to ask for feedback more often in my one-to-one scenarios. And so it was yesterday, actually, I had a client and I was delivering the results of, of a brand strategy and action plan. And at one point she said, oh, I didn't understand this line. It's like, I didn't quite get what you were saying. And so when I explained it, I said, well, what would have been a better way to show that to you? And she said, oh, well, what I would have liked was a screenshot of on my website with a big red circle around what we're talking about. And I thought, well, of course, because I was giving her a text document and this was something that I was referring to that was visual. Well, of course that would be better. Now, whether I can do that in every single situation, I don't know, but I'm going to try that. I mean, why not? If, if it helps somebody to get it and get it faster, that's my goal. Mm-hmm. I've got to do it. Yeah. Yeah. The mantra of ascending the economic value ladder, whatever you want to call it, is customization. And I see offering these additional modalities, if you will, gives people the opportunity to kind of customize the experience for themselves. I don't know if that's, if that's cheating, but it's like, I feel like it is custom. Like, do you want to get the lessons as text or do you want to get them as video or do you want to get them as audio? Your pick, you do it, whatever works best for you. And to me, that's um, a good example of customization, giving visuals to, you know, for you're a text person, you're a spreadsheet person and your client is like, well, I, I could really, we're talking about visuals. It would really help if I had like a, a picture in front of me. It's like, oh, yeah, right. duh. Okay, that makes sense. <laughs> exactly. One of the things that kept on hitting me, especially in the, reading the experience portions of the book, were the the choice of guest as, as the buyer descriptor. When you think of... Um, commodities, they're bought by markets. It's like this mass of anonymous people. And then if you think of goods, those are bought by customers. And if you think of services, those are bought by clients. And then if you think of experiences, those are bought by guests. And then in the transformation level, they're bought by aspirants, which is a little, not my favorite word, but it does seem like the best one. So I kept asking myself before I got to the transformation part, I was like, what could I offer that, you know, is in service of my mission to rid the world of hourly billing. What can I offer where the buyers would reasonably be referred to as guests? Like, what is that? I mean, a workshop makes sense, a conference, a show. Yeah, I was going with <laughs> like show. A, a skit. When you said that, I was thinking of a video where you're immersing them in an experience of how to go from hourly billing to something else like a role play almost only on film. I mean, the, the coolest would be if you could like press this button and you get this outcome and you press this button and you get another, but that's what struck me as you were talking. Hmm. It was a great list litmus test. As I thought through things, I was like, Oh, it struck me as uh, a great way to test whether or not you think you're you've taken your service that you offer because probably everybody here offers a service. Everyone listening probably offers a service. And what could you do to, could you truly call your buyers guests? Probably not. Probably not. Like the, the guy that landscapes my yard is I'm not his guest. <laughs> <laughs> he's you know he's I mean? your guest. 
Right. But when I go to Briggs Garden Center, which is just an amazing, it's, it's, it's a total experience economy home run. It's this place near our house where you can go and spend half a day strolling through these outside gardens. And there's like a park for the kids that has dinosaur statues and they have a cafe with really good food. And it's, you know, and, and they sell plants, right? Like you could just be like, oh, we sell plants. And it'd be like, just a, a rack after rack after rack of like tomato plants or whatever. Right. Like Home like Depot's gardening se- yeah, section. Depot. Exactly. Exactly. But th- this is like Briggs is like the experience economy version of the Home Depot Garden Center where you just want to hang out there. You, like people literally go there for lo- there's a, like a, a line, like a, a half hour wait to get lunch there. And people are just like, that's cool. It's beautiful. It's so nice. They can legitimately call their customers guests. But if you're my landscaper, I'm not this guy's guest. Without creating retail locations or without creating in-person events, which isn't off the table, I wouldn't think for either one of us. I could imagine either one of us doing like a meetup or um, a retreat or a workshop or uh, something like that. I could totally see that. I can also imagine webinars and the sort of online group experiences like live a live stream all you could almost call the people on the live stream guests yeah i think if as long as you're teaching and not selling i think of this typical selling webinar that wouldn't in my mind that wouldn't qualify but yeah yeah i have to say i have this this barrier to using the word guest and i'm i I think it's it's probably maybe it's just me there's just something about the word guest that almost for me, almost demeans the experience. And I think part of it is that I was raised in consulting, as an adult, that is. Um, So I've been using the word client for so long. I I literally can't say customer. I think of my my people as clients, that I'm serving them and, and that the highest mission is for their good. It's a type of service. So it is about the experience. So it's not the concept of experience or guesting that bothers me. It's something, maybe it's the shift to this idea of, of being a host. But I sort of am when I work with people in person. I mean, I've done that for years. You bring people together and you're, you use what I call host behavior. You know, you make sure people are happy and they're having a good time, i.e. a good experience. There's something about that word guest that just, I, I can't quite get it out of my mouth. <laughs> I spent years like front of house in restaurants and any restaurant, that's what they call the the customers, their guests, any good restaurant. If you're at a good restaurant, that's what they call them. And so for me, it's pretty natural, but it does feel like, it does feel like trying to apply it in certain places is a stretch. And in fact, I think Joe said that most of his clients are in the healthcare space. I don't think hospitals are calling patients guests, they're calling them patients. Probably. I don't think they call them guests. Maybe they do. I don't know. Maybe there's some that do. Maybe there's some that do. Yeah. It really changes the way you think about what your job is. Yes. Which I think is important. Maybe that's what's getting me. It's, It's you want them to have a good time versus you want them to learn something. Well, why can't we do both at the same time? That may just be a bias I have in my head somehow that comes out in language. But yeah, it should be. Even transformation experiences, there should be some parts of those that are fun. They're not all going to be fun. 
change doesn't come without without effort, without some pain along the way, but you can make the process fun and parts of the experience fun, educational, entertaining. Mm-hmm. So it's not his mission to turn every service into entertainment. It was not, it's not that everything needs to be entertaining and, and it's too in-depth for us to go into here and I couldn't do it from memory anyway, but there are four quadrants of, of experience and they're educational and entertaining and there's like a, a mix of different things, but they're all very engaging. But the, the crux of it was that the buyer is guest-like and they are spending time with you. They're spending time with, with your experience, not necessarily you. They're spending time with whatever experience you put together. And the feeling of being, of engaging that experience and having, having that memory really is, is what they're paying for. That's a a segue into another really great litmus test that we did touch on when we were interviewing him was about memorabilia. And that was another question. It's like, what could I offer to folks that would in service of this mission to get them where they want to be in an, in a way that's engaging? Cause it's a, it's a tough journey to make for people like they, it's uh, stressful. It's like ditching hourly billing is like ripping off a major bandaid and going into uh, uncharted territory. It's, it feels very, it is risky. It feels risky. It feels scary. Um, so what what can I do to help people get through that? And like maybe uh, some sort of event for memorabilia to be of interest, it almost has to be around a particular event, you know? So it's like, what could be created that would help people through this process that they would enjoy the time spent doing it? And then at the end, they'd be like, wow, that was amazing. I want the t-shirt. I want the mug. I want the, not as like, like, oh, how can I sell merch like a revenue stream? It's not like that. It's like, it's more like, dear listener, what could you create that would be so good, so memorable that somebody would actually want to buy a pin or a mug or a t-shirt or like some piece of, some artifact that reminded them of the event and that was a conversation starter. It was like a trigger for conversation. Like, are you doing anything right now that's that good? Probably not. Yeah, well, I think the other thing is, and we talked about this, I think, after we stopped the the formal recording, is is whether you require people to pay for the memorabilia or not. Because what really strikes me is, I think that whatever that thing is, that it's a talisman for that experience for your transformation. So I could see a situation where it wouldn't have to be an event, Although you'd make it into an event. And by event, I mean, it could be, if you work virtually, it could be a phone call and you do a presentation over the phone or you send them something in the mail. And it has to obviously not be like, you know, a pen with your business name on it. That's not what we're talking about, right? (laughs) Right, right. It's got to be something that really every time they look at it, they're going to remember that experience. I mean, I think about, it's just a simple example, but we just got back from vacation and we were doing some wine tasting different places. And one of the things the wineries do now is when you pay for your tasting, they give you a glass. 
that has their name on it. Now, I'm not really into collecting that stuff, but a lot of people are. And I watch people wrap them very carefully and put them into their bags and take them home. And probably every time they look at that glass, they remember the visit to that winery. I think at its best, it really tugs at the memory of the experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Like they made it through your coaching program. Right. When you look at this wine glass, you're not like, oh, wow, what a nice wine glass. You're thinking, oh, that trip was so great. Like I have a, I've had a couple of service providers that I've hired to do things for me. And, you know, like, like a project had beginning, a middle and an end and it's over. They're really nice. And periodically they'll send me like, like a, like a Moleskine with like an embossed, like their logo and tastefully embossed on the cover. And I'm like, this is nice, but I don't want this I'm not going to use it now I have this thing that I like I don't want to throw it out like what am I supposed to do with this and here's the thing the problem is it just reminds me of their business like oh yeah remember when these people built this website for like but the process of building it wasn't like like they were great and it was good they did a great job I was very happy with it and the outcome I was very happy with the outcome but me the time I spent with them doing it was not memorable so I don't, so this, so when I get this thing in the mail, I get this thing in the mail, it's like, um, it has no emotion attached to it. It's just them being, they're very nice. It's a nice thing to do, but it doesn't have the effect that a diploma has. It doesn't have the effect that, uh, that a t-shirt from a Foo Fighters concert has, you know, it's, it's totally different. It's still an artifact that I don't know. It's, I mean, I hope it's obvious what I'm saying here, but internally, as I think of it, there's no comparison between this like random Moleskine notebook that I get in the mail and like a hoodie from the Foo Fighters at the Boston Garden or Fenway Park. I just thought of an example of something that I used to do. It's just been so long since I've done it, I've forgotten. So I used to lead these giant change projects for corporations. And so we would have a team, be a consulting team and a client team. And when the project was over, I always made sure to mark the event with some kind of, it was either a lunch or a dinner usually. And what I used to do, and this is going to sound really weird, is I would write them a poem And when I say a poem, I mean funny, that recounted the whole journey. I made sure every single client got their name in it, along with some quirk that everybody knew about them. I would get up and I would read this poem. Of course, they would laugh, but I got so many requests, they wanted it. So in a couple of occasions, like I actually had them bound, but usually they weren't that long. It brought everybody together. And I don't, it wouldn't surprise me at all if they threw it away. But for those moments and for some months afterwards, because we'd been through the war together and, and everybody, most everybody came out the other side. So you had this piece of memorabilia that was, ephemeral. It didn't cost anything. It was just on a piece of paper. I know one person still has it. And that has to be at least 20 years since, since that, that one. Yeah. That's a great example. And guess what? When you had that lunch or the dinner, they were your guests. They were. Good point. (laughs) They were. You're exactly right. They were my guests. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Obviously there's something to it. This, the book has been out for 20 years and it's still very successful, but there's really something to it. Like it's, it's so easy to sort of, this is a bunch of 
woo woo, you know, feel good, spending time in, you know, memorable experience. It's like, or that's just for restaurants or that's just for theme parks or something like that. And I'm like, I can't stop seeing it everywhere. That's the thing that's really got me. That's the thing that's really got me hooked into this. And I'm like, wow, I could, I could make things better for the people who care about these things in the same way that Starbucks is better than Dunkin' Donuts or buying a, a bag of Folgers beans at Eastside Marketplace. Like the amount of beans in a cup of coffee is like a penny or something at the commodity level. And then as it turns into goods, like a bag of, of, of bagged ground beans per cup of coffee, it's maybe 10 cents. Then you go up to a, like a greasy spoon diner, you're paying maybe 75 cents. And then you get up to Starbucks, you're paying five bucks because there's a whole, there's a whole everything. Like there's a whole, you know, this is a place where you feel comfortable. There are people like you there and, you know, the ambiance and, and the music and the service and all of the, the language, they get their own language. And you're part of that, you're part of that group. If you go, if you're a Starbucks person, you're a Starbucks person and you're not a Dunkin' Donuts person. Well, or the example he uses in the book of a coffee place in, uh, I think it's St. Mark's Square in, in Venice, you know, where it's $15 a cup. So yeah, there's always some place to take that experience. And hey, oh, you get to keep your cup in St. Mark's Square. Now you've got your memorabilia. <laughs> Well, I think the other thing that it would be easy to scoff at, but I wouldn't for a second because I totally believe him, is work is theater. And I think in my own experience as I work with experts, so many times we've been taught we have to take ourselves very seriously because we are an expert and we are becoming an authority on whatever it is. So we must be you know, formal and we have to do all those things. But really... It is theater. It's about how they see you. And it's easy to think of it when you're doing spe platform speaking, right? How you hold your body, how you move, um, how you make eye contact, how you use words, the tone of voice and all that. But I totally agree with, with the authors that this is a lot of this is about making the work that you do theater because people are watching or they're listening if you're doing work virtually. And how we approach that, that exchange of knowledge, information, wisdom, depending on where we are on the, on the chart, it impacts people. It, ha it makes a difference. Oh, yeah. And if, you, and if that really rubs you the wrong way, dear listener, like acting, that's BS, and it's not theater, it's, not, it's nothing like that. First of all, I agree with all that, but I understand that it's like it, it can be repellent to a particular uh, mind. I think the important thing to recognize is that if someone can see you, they can see you <laughs> or hear you or whatever. If you are not completely by yourself, you're sending out, Pine would say you're on stage and, and that's a fair way to put it. But just recognize that like the, the way you walk from the backstage to on stage to give your talk is just as important as what you say. So there's a, there's a, tendency, I've done it, I know a lot of people do it, there's a tendency to compartmentalize the portion that you believe is the important part and completely ignore all of the, the lead up and the, the sort of ramp down, the onstage, the offstage, the, it could be a million things, the background in the back, what you're wearing in a video or what's behind you in a video when you're doing like a live stream or something, or here's a great example. So I did a sort of a 
I don't know, it was like a group video call. I yeah, I guess that's a good way to describe it. It was a group video call. And I was one of the presenters. And the other presenters, we were all in a, uh, like a green, virtual green room before the event started. And a bunch of stuff happened there that was not that cool. The event started and like the general public came in. And in a sense, it was backstage. You know, in a sense, it was backstage because the general public wasn't there. But there were a lot of people there. I'm seeing this. <laughs> I'm seeing what is happening here. And then the onstage thing happens. And I, I don't know. I think that backstage part is, I want to say just as important. It's important in a different way because it's a different audience, but it's still an audience. And, and sometimes it is recorded as various politicians have discovered when they had a hot mic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right, right. Yeah. It's kind of like Steve Jobs is saying that the computers should be as beautiful on the inside as the outside. It's kind of like that. I think there's an authenticity angle here too, which interestingly enough, uh, Mr. Pine also has a book called Authenticity and a, a book called Mass Customization, which customizing things is the way you climb up the economic ladder. I think a, a really easy takeaway that isn't like eye-rollingly, come on, give me a break, is like just recognize that if anybody can see you or hear you, you're on. It doesn't matter if you haven't started your slide deck yet or you haven't started the consultation yet or with a sales call or whatever it is that you're about to do, you're on. So I was going to say be professional, but be appropriate. Like recognize that it's just as important as what you probably you know, you probably spent all your time and energy working on the slide deck or the content, whatever the main part of it was. But the other things are can wreck it. <laughs> they can they can undo all of your good work by being in a way that is creates cognitive dissonance with the way you want to present yourself in the the meat of the action. But let's also add, I mean, I know you mentioned it here, but the visual is important. You know, comb your hair. Look like you didn't just crawl out of bed to come. To, I mean, I've had some calls with people like that. You're on stage. Well, unless that's the thing. Yeah, I unless suppose. That's the yeah, thing. unless it's the thing. But I, most of our audience, I don't think that's the thing. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. But I mean, we've interviewed people who swear a lot. Uh, oh, but that's okay. That's part of their thing. That's how I would look at that. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Like, it's unprofessional, though. That would You'd call that unprofessional. No, I wouldn't necessarily. It, it depends on their profession. Fair. Okay. It does. I mean, like an academic professor, no, that's not professional. If you're Gary V, that's a shtick. See, that's what I mean. You expect it. So like, as long as it's all consistent, I'm cool with that. But if you're just like totally disheveled and, you know, and like angry, and then the light comes on and you're like, hey, everybody. Hey, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's, that's, that's not yes. cool. Yeah. yeah. It's that authenticity. And it's also, uh, and sometimes people hate when, when they hear somebody like me saying this, but it's staying on brand and whatever that is, it doesn't matter. Your brand is your brand and it should reflect who you are, how you work and how you live your life. And so I would have a hard time getting on a stage if I didn't have a dress on. Okay, that's just me. That's just how I think. It's how I present. But when I'm doing a, a video call at home, I'm still going to look professional, but I'm probably not going to wear a dress. 
right? I'm probably not going to. It's going, but I'm going to make sure that the part they can see, which is probably like waist up, right? I've got my hair is combed, you know, it's clean. I have some makeup on, some some cool looking earrings, you know, and that's all I need to worry about, other than that the backdrop doesn't look insane. It would be disconnect. It would be like this isn't what I expected. In fact, I did when I first moved, uh, we first moved into our home here, I was having a lot of work done and I did a video call with somebody and I had the closet door wasn't on yet. And, and I had, there were all these clothes hanging there and I, I made, made a point of apologizing and, and the guy was laughing. He's like, it's just not how I see you. I just didn't see you as like recording in front of a closet without a door. <laughs> Yeah, I probably shouldn't have done that. I probably should have been at a different spot. But yeah, yeah. We don't want dissonance. We want things to feel like what we have come to expect from the person that we're watching. Right. And that probably tracks. Like people listening are probably like, yeah, obviously. Well, that's the same thing. Like that's the same thing as like realizing that you're always on, not always on stage, but when you're on stage, it doesn't matter if you're in in the performance or the, the pre or post. All counts. So anyway, I, I thought that was a that was a, yeah. a cool takeaway. Yeah, somebody's always watching you when you're in public. And and I don't mean that to, to make somebody feel self-conscious, but it it another way to look at it is you always have a chance to influence people. It's like if you go to the grocery store, you can be nice to the clerk who's in a bad mood. You can give back what you're getting, or you can be neutral, but you you there's a choice. It just takes it up 10 notches when you think about it being on a public stage. Yeah. I, I mean, I live, in, I live in a city, but it's a small city. So like, and I grew up in the state, you know, Rhode Island's the smallest state. So I've got the small town thing. Like <laughs> if you pull a hissy fit in the Whole Foods, <laughs> someone, <laughs> someone you know is going to see it. <laughs> Man, you got to be careful. <laughs> yeah, it's just not worth it. And there's cameras and microphones everywhere. Privacy is like, not to get into a tech thing, but someone's watching you. Everything you do is pretty much everything is going to be observed. So it's like, I'm from a newspaper family. And when I was little, my dad was like, at some point, he's like, don't do anything that you don't want to see on the front page of the paper. Cause that's, that's could, could be where it ends up. And it's uh, it's similar. It feels like similar advice. Is there anything else we could talk about that, uh, that you your head had your head exploding from the interview? Yeah, I had to write this down because I wanted to make sure I quoted it exactly. It's from the book. And here's what he said. Management consultants who deliver strategic analysis without guiding the client through implementation of the changes remain in the service business, not the transformation business. That just blew me away. This idea that you can... If you do strategic analysis, you can't be in the transformation business without implementation. It's not that I don't agree with it. I actually do agree with it. But the implications when you think about, or at least for me with client, I have a fair number of clients that are strategy consultants. And this idea that you can be on this cloud floating above the fray and give this advice but not get your hands dirty with helping them to actually implement, which is the hardest part, by the way, having spent a big chunk of my career doing that, it's the hardest part. You're fooling yourself thinking you're in the transformation business because you're not, you're giving a service. Yeah, I would parse that a teeny bit. And maybe you can tell me if you think I'm smoking the drapes, but 
for many years since I was soloist, I wasn't doing implementation. There's usually a team of people that was needed to do implementation. And usually the client would have the people and they would keep me on in an oversight role. So I would, I would be involved in the project, not as a project manager, but at just oversight. So it's almost like I came up at, like in an architect model or a building model. It's like I came up with the blueprint or we worked together to create a blueprint. And then as the builders built it, I would sort of walk around and be like, yep, this looks good. Uh, why'd you use that? Okay, that's probably a good idea. Good job. Or I don't know, you guys, I think this is going to be a mistake. You're going off book and, you know, sort of like keep people on track, but I'm not actually pounding the nails. So, you know, perhaps that is, um, you know, not the same thing, but it certainly feels like you've got uh, skin in skin in the game's not yeah. right, but you know you have some skin in you're the game. on board like you're involved in yeah. the implementation you're not doing every single thing i, I kind of don't think it matters like where the paycheck like how the money's flowing if the money is flowing to like an outside party that's doing the implementation like is it flowing through me or is it just going directly to them who cares yeah i don't yeah that doesn't matter yeah. to me as i'm as i'm thinking about this it's i, I think of it and, you know, I used to do a lot of merger integration work. So I think of it as that you're an advisor to the team as you get to that point. And so sometimes you step in proactively because you see it running off the rails. And other times you wait for them to bring you in because you're not an employee of that organization. You see it from a different level, but you, you have to help them through that implementation. And when I used to do that work, it was interesting because McKinsey would do the big picture business strategy work, but they never had anybody doing the merger integration. They do now, but they didn't then. And so I would literally, the way I would get projects is I would you know, hear where McKinsey was doing business strategy. <laughs> and I would show up on their doorstep and, you know, show them how to make it work with the people in the organization. But you have to do that on some level if you want to keep moving on this continuum from, you know, service to experience to transformation. Mm -hmm. I mean, some people just offer one thing. They just get paid to speak and that's their thing, or they just do coaching or they just do development, you know, or they just do whatever. But if you you could have different things that occupy different spots in the the sort of progression, so like the highest tier thing you might do, Joe talked about is golf pro. The golf pro could do these sort of one on one. The promise is I'll get your handicap down to single digits. It's five thousand bucks, and you're going to do all the work. By the way, but without me, you won't get there. So take it or leave it. And so that's sort of his, you could imagine that what I would call his helicopter option where it's like very highly engaged, very much transformational, charging for the transformation, not charging for the inputs or the time it takes the golf pro, but just for the, the outcome, the desired outcome. But the golf pro could also sell clubs. That's a product or that's the goods level of the, and he could also sell a video course of how to improve your swing. And he could also teach, you know, group classes where a whole bunch of people show up at Wednesday at 10 p.m. or 10 a.m. Who would golf at 10 p.m.? <laughs> uh, and, and gives like a, just a class and that would be mm -hmm. maybe a service. So I, I don't think you need to operate exclusively in one of these spots. I think that you could have yeah. offerings at all different levels. 
That, that's a really good point. And, and I think it also positions you well for that continuum because there are, one of the things I'm kind of chuckling about is there are so many people that want to coach on a thing. There, there aren't that many people that are actually delivering the thing. And sometimes you need it done for you right? Versus you don't want to learn it yourself. You want somebody to do it. So there's, there's a real advantage, I think, to having those, those points at all three, probably not below services. I think I would stick with the higher end of the spectrum, but yeah, if you're selling any products, it should be more like memorabilia. Probably if you want to, if you want to be an adherent of the book. Well, information products like books and things like that, absolutely. But I, I, I'm putting that in the, the services, experiences, and transformation because of who our audience is. You know, this, it's not a book to, I don't know, to uh, while away the hours in, you know, in 12th century yeah, England. Novel, yeah, right? yeah. <laughs> or it's not a lamp either. Right, exactly. You know, it's not a bag of coffee beans. It's like. Yeah, know. yeah. I could, I could seriously talk about this for another hour, but I think we should probably stop. <laughs> yeah. Uh, cool. All right. Well, that's it for this week. I'm Jonathan Stark. And I'm Rochelle Moulton. And we hope you join us again next time for The Business of Authority. Bye. Bye-bye.